Welcome back to Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. I'm personal financial planner, columnist, and financial therapist, Rick Kaler. Research tells us that 90% of all financial decisions are made emotionally, not logically. For nearly four decades, I've been helping people make better money decisions. So what makes my financial worldview different from most financial experts? I blend the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Good money decisions are not just about the money. So let's get started with today's episode. Welcome back to another edition. And about the time I wonder what I'm going to talk about this week, something is dumped in my lap and <laughs> then I get too much information to share. So let's see where these go. As, as you know, these are pretty much unscripted talks. I just sit down and talk to you like we would be talking if we were in the same room together enjoying a cup of coffee. And what's on my mind today is how we make financial decisions. In uh, the book, Facilitating Financial Health, making sound financial decisions is um, a pretty important topic. And making poor financial decisions is actually one of the problematic financial behaviors that we talk about. So, I mean, this is a big topic, right? And in a way, we've been talking about it (laughs) for almost the past year. The decisions that we make about finances, about health, have really lasting consequences. And I experience, and I am no psychologist, but I hang around with a lot of psychologists and read a lot of their books, right? And being a certified financial therapist, uh, level one, and a certified IFS practitioner, I have a little insight into how these decisions are made. And I, I find if I can be really general, that most of these decisions fall into two general methodologies that produce and can produce pretty pretty different outcomes. One is more of a gut-based, emotions-based process, and the other is a more cognitive process. When we're making decisions uh, with our gut, with our emotions, and, and when I say emotions, I've talked a lot about how it's really important to be aware of emotions in decision-making process. I'm really talking about being unaware of emotions when we're making these decisions. And that's why I, I put gut or instinct into the, to the equation. These are usually the quickest the absolute easiest decisions to make because conscious, more cognitive, fact-based decisions are harder to make because they take data, things move slower, and it actually takes the body more energy to, to make these decisions. Have you ever had a period of time when you're working on a paper or reading an article or something, and you're really thinking, and and you just uh, become exhausted as a an author, and 
writer of a weekly column, I, I, I know exactly what I'm talking about. It takes a lot of effort. So it doesn't mean that gut-based emotional decisions are wrong. In some cases, they're very right. You know, if you see your child playing in the middle of the street and you see an approaching vehicle and you run out and grab them up, you don't have time to sit there and think, hmm, now let me see, how far away is that car? And looking at its speed velocity, it's probably going to hit my kid in about 1.2 seconds. <laughs> I mean, you know, you got to act quick. But when we are applying these gut instinctive uh, decisions, which we're told are, are based more in kind of the, the stored memory, the limbic brain, they can um, not be so good when we're making really serious long-term decisions about our physical health, our financial, or our emotional well-being. So I, I find that the, that the outcome of making those gut-based decisions just usually doesn't serve us well in that arena. Now, here's the problem. The problem is most Americans think they know more about anything than they actually do. And that includes money. And in case you think I just made a gut-based statement, <laughs> there's research that uh, behind this. And specifically, I want to quote the research around money. I wrote a column on this, um, I don't know, maybe it was a year ago or so, that there was an October 2019 Kiplinger article that found that 71% of Americans think they are financially literate. Yet by age 40, 66% can't correctly answer five very basic fundamental questions on the concept of money. So that's kind of a disconnect. 71% think that they're illiterate. 66% fail a very simple financial literacy test. In addition to that, we've talked about this before, some pretty widely reported that 7 out of 10 Americans have saved less than $1,000 of cash, meaning if they needed $1,000 tomorrow, they would have to borrow on a credit card or sell something to get the money. So the, the point here is that the facts suggest that while we think we're financially savvy, we're actually a nation of financial illiterates. So let's apply that. I'd, I'd like to apply this today to investing. We don't talk too much about investing in this podcast because there's so much out there, right? This is about financial therapy. And yet, <laughs> as I've said many times, there's two words in financial therapy, financial and therapy, and they're both really big arenas. We're blending those together. Making good investment decisions is relatively easy from a 
factual, logical point of view. You might be saying, well, Rick, anything is easy from a factual, logical point of view, and you'd be right. The evidence on how to invest smartly is overwhelming and easy to access. There's tons of it uh, on the internet. There's also tons of how to do it very poorly, but um, and we'll get into that, but the evidence, there's just tons of research. And the research shows that having a good mix of well-diversified, low-cost, passive equity mutual funds or ETFs, which is very similar to a mutual fund, will have long-term returns that beat 97% of all investment strategies. Okay? So this is kind of close to a leave-it-and-forget-it strategy. Well-diversified, low-cost, passive equity funds. All right. Now, I started to write an article <laughs> that suggested people um, don't believe in passive investing at all because I continually see prospects and talk with people that completely believe in trading, completely believe in finding the new or the next Tesla or feeling that they've got to buy low and sell high and need to be very active. So I made the assumption that most people think you've really got to be engaged to make any money in the stock market. <laughs> and as happens when I am writing an article, and I typically put aside a couple hours every Sunday to do that, I ran across a Gallup poll. And this Gallup poll... It, it comes from uh, September 20th, 21 article uh, written by Lydia Sad. Found 71% of investors say passive investing is superior to active investing. And I'm looking at this and I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. 71% of investors believe in passive investing? I mean... Wow, I see the 29% a lot. So I thought, huh, I'm going to have to rethink my thesis here. Obviously, I'm wrong. And I got looking at the report and digging down through it. And, and you know, I, I mean, uh, uh, as much as I talk about emotions and being aware of emotions and therapy, I have a wonderfully developed left brain. And I am most comfortable in my left brain. And I love data. I love statistics. So I started going down uh, through this and I got onto this one, one part of this uh, uh, survey that talked about the frequency of trading amongst U.S. investors. And it said uh, of these people that uh, they surveyed, 1% trade daily, 4% trade weekly, 14% trade monthly, 32% trade a few times a year, and 
trade once a year. Now, if you add all that up, I think that comes to 62% who trade at least once a year, once a year, if not more. 16 to finish this out, 16% said they just trade less often than once a year, and 22% said never. Now, trading your stocks once a year or less is not passive. That is active. So 62% at least, and it's probably more, right? They didn't, well, I'll get to that in in a minute. 62% are actively trading, yet 71% say passive investing is the way to go. Well, there's a disconnect here. Obviously, they believe passive investing includes uh, the many who buy specific shares. You know, they're looking for that new Tesla, selling high, buying low, keeping your winners, selling your losers. They believe that that's part of passive investing. Well, what is passive investing? According to a well-known study by Dalbar, D-A-L-B-A-R, defines a passive investor as someone who trades less than once every five years. Five years. I think the the average is like 5.1 or 5.3 years that the, the passive investor kept their um, securities. And they found that those that did, those that sold mutual funds or stocks less than once every five years had a 97% chance of maximizing or having returns above everyone else. And actually, at 97%, they beat some of the indexes, which are are, um, buy and hold indexes, meaning that those that traded less than once every five years had annual investment returns of three to four percent less than those who held their their funds for five years or more. Now that's huge. Three or four percent a year is huge. On five hundred thousand, that's fifteen to twenty thousand dollars less a year. And you compound that over 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. This is huge. So this is an example of where our our emotional ignorance can really get in our way and cost us a lot of money. So yet, you know, I ask myself, what is the reason for this disconnect. How do we think and we're convinced that we're literate, that we're passive investors, and yet the data shows just the opposite? Well, I think um, one of the things is a part of the human condition is that facts don't matter if they don't align with our worldview. So I think this is a big reason why so many of us hold on to delusional beliefs about money, about investing, 
and even about health decisions. We are really reluctant to undergo the arduous, painful, humiliating process of challenging and modifying our worldviews. And if we put this into uh, an IFS, Internal Family Systems, lens, I said we tend to be reluctant to undergo the arduous, painful, and humiliating process of challenging our worldviews, right? And we know through this lens that there's just parts of us that protectors want to, with all good intentions, want to, to, to keep wrapped up, to keep them so that they don't break out. And we call these exiles. So there, there's parts of us that were wounded at some point in time in our life. And protectors stepped in to say, hey, I'm going to, I'll solve this for you. you you're never going to feel this again. Let's take the process of saying I was wrong, right? Now, we could gain a lot of opinions, a lot of behaviors around saying I was wrong that had nothing to do with money, nothing to do with money. And, I mean, just, just think of any example that you can of when you may have admitted you made a mistake when you admitted you were wrong. And the feedback you got, the result you got, was shame, judgment, blame, criticism. And let's say you were a child of, um, take any age, and this was the response. And maybe this is the first time you ever said you were wrong. And it's possible the very first time, and you may not even remember this, that you thought about saying you were wrong, there may not be any shame, blame, criticism, or anything attached to it. If you think about inventors and people that have that look at their mistakes as necessary in the process of success, I think a scientist would be the best one. They actually do experiments to fail so that they know, okay, that one's off the table. That one didn't work. It's the same thing with um, uh, group therapists, psychodrama therapists that I learned. I took a training once on that. And I found out that um, therapists don't have x-ray vision. And in fact, they'll try something. And if it doesn't work and the client says, no, that's not it, they're like, okay, great. I know that that's not it. Let's try this one, see if that's it. It's part of the process. So let's just go back to that child that gets this huge reaction, probably from their caregivers, their parents. A part of them is so hurt, feels so humili humiliated, feels, wow, I am defective. Something is really wrong with me. I had better never admit I'm wrong again. And so a protector steps in and says, I'm going to help you with that to make sure, because we don't want to feel this depth of humiliation, this depth of criticism and shame ever again. Now, 
I'm making this really simple, like it happened once. If it happened once and that was it, probably no big deal. But usually these things don't happen just once. So the 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 kid really learns in these parts of it. Nope, we're not going to do that. So here you are thinking you know something, thinking that, that you have read this someplace or it's got to be true or it's just feels right. And you, we tell ourselves so many things when, when uh, things aren't working as to why. You know, lots of judgments, like when we have money scripts. And this is, this is a money belief. A money script is that I need to do these things to make money. And uh, a money script can be, yes, I am a passive investor. And it's it's uh, and yet my behaviors are active, but it's very painful when we have conflicting money scripts, when we have polarized money scripts to recognize that because immediately these protectors, parts of ours are saying, no, they can't be conflicting. Uh, if they were conflicting, that would mean something's wrong with this. So here's why they aren't. Or here's why this behavior is actually passive. And uh, please don't confuse me with the facts. It's not that that we are trying to be deceptive, that we're trying to be harmful to ourselves. Our, these parts are actually convinced of the opposite, that this is helpful. And the helpful part is we don't want to feel these intense, difficult emotions of shame because I'm wrong. And what I believed was passive investing wasn't. Now, now sometimes the cognitive information is enough, right? Sometimes what I have just described, you might go, oh, wow, <laughs> I thought I believed in passive investing. I clearly have been doing active investing. I need to do a little research on here. And if that's the case, great. And if you change your, your behavior with that cognitive information, you know, super. But oftentimes we've got to work with these really deep emotions, these really deep parts of ourselves that are, um, are kept really deep by these protective parts of ourselves. So obviously... This type of uh, money script, this type of um, saying, well, this doesn't square with my worldview. It doesn't square with my view of these protectors. And that's when we start saying, you know, can we, can we look at these parts that we're so shamed, that we're, we're so judged, that we're so hurt, and work with them? If we can help free them, then to say, I was wrong. It's no big deal, right? Because there's no part getting up, feeling shame, criticized, blamed, or any of these difficult emotions. It doesn't become an arduous, painful, humiliating process to say, I had wrong data, right? So that's, uh, that's what I wanted to hit. How do you know if uh, your firmly held beliefs are putting you or your family at risk, look at your behaviors, okay? How can you tell if you're 70, part of 71% of Americans who think their financial 
illiterate or passive investors and who are not. One indicator that there's a gap here would be if you have less than $1,000 in a savings account. Other red flags would include if you buy and sell your stocks or mutual funds more than once every five years. If your long-term equity investments are returning less than the S&P 500 index. Uh, If you experience chronic anxiety about money or feel ashamed of your financial situation or certainly ashamed of being wrong, these are red flags. So the first step in doing this is becoming willing to unlearn, become willing to take a look at these parts of you that were so hurt and probably do some financial therapy. It's... um, far easier said than done. It's really hard for uh, these protective parts of us to become open and willing to examine their money scripts, examine their money burdens, and take a look at how they form and begin to work with these really vulnerable parts of us. So isn't it interesting that something so simple in childhood that could have nothing to do with money really impacts our financial well-being. So that's what I have for you today. Thanks uh, for joining me and I look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for joining me, Rick Kaler, for another episode of Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. This is where I combine the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Remember, every financial behavior, whether it appears illogical to you or others, makes perfect sense when we understand the underlying beliefs, feelings, and thoughts. Sign up for my weekly blog at financialawakenings.com. I hope you'll join me again for our next episode.